just give uh, the average Joe an insight of what's it like playing at this level. Friday night's always been a, um, a personal favourite of mine. You've got the, the long weekend. Everyone's just wanting that release, that stimulation, just to watch a macabre sport of gladiatorial confrontation. And you, you feed off that as athletes. Like, you love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. we've met before but i'm the referee on this field not you if i hear you calling for anything again i'm going to be penalizing you this is not soccer okay <laughs> welcome to the dropped kickoff for another week <laughs> starting off with my absolutely god-awful nigel owens impression and i'm here with the one and only long-suffering nathan williamson by my side here to join me on the raw and rugby.com.au's official after hours podcast how are official, we doing, unofficial. Official, officially unofficial unofficial Let's let's keep my keep leg off my off my back. But yes, I didn't realize Nigel Owen went Irish for a second there. It's good to see the nationality change. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I kind of I kind of like jumped over a little. Uh, I jumped across the sea a little bit there. Apologies about that <laughs> to all of our all of our Welsh fans listening. It's the Welsh accent's hard. It's really hard. I, you know, watching the days watching Little Britain have not been kind. Uh, and and it's and no one has got the the beautiful twang of Nigel Owens and we miss him but the the referee mention is especially poignant because we are joined once again he's back for his yearly appearance on the show it's becoming like a regular occurrence one and only coops Graham Cooper mate welcome it's nice to see you in beautiful uh, humid hot WA how are you how you been G'day fellas yeah really well thanks yeah it has been a, a warm couple of weeks nice 37 degrees over the weekend, so um, hasn't dipped below 35 in three weeks, I don't think, here. So, but mate, going well. Footy season's back. Isn't it nice? It feels like we were just talking about beforehand. It feels like it's been it's been forever uh, since the footy was on. It feels strange, but it's nice to just finally be here. Did you go down to Did you go down to HBF Park on on, on Friday night? Uh, mate, I was running touch. So, I was going to um, say, he had his best seat in the ground. What are you talking I def- about? I definitely. Yeah, it's true. There. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Actually, considering the game, it was actually a pretty good atmosphere and um, a little bit of buzz and some positive talk, which was, which was good to see. It's annoying that it didn't. Uh, it didn't. The game itself didn't emerge the way that we, we were hoping it would. But hey, we'll get to that in a second. Um, and of course, it's only round one. We still have plenty of time to turn things around. But uh, as usual, we'll kick off with this left field topic discussion. We've been kicking off with a random left field topic at the start of all of our episodes. And in line with my terrible Welsh impression of, uh, of Nigel Owens calling down a halfback, we have asked you both a question, which is your favourite moment of refs laying down the law. So I, inspiration for this one was from an under-20s game a few weeks ago, uh, weeks ago between, I think it was... The Welsh and the under tw- um, the Welsh and England captain, where the ref pulled them aside and said, "Guys, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. I had I talked to you both beforehand. We agreed we wouldn't start a, st- a scuffle, and here we are. Are we gonna are we gonna play now? So I'll open this up to both like international games, but just on the field in general. Could be club land. What's your favourite moment, Coops? Are you okay if I throw to you first on this? Yeah, I th- mate, I've, I've got a, a list down here. That, um, you've stolen one of them. <laughs> So that's we'll tick that box. I actually had Amy Barrett the Rons from a couple of weeks ago. The, the I'm I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. So that's another ticket box. Yeah. 
Um, the other one was, <laughs> I think, maybe last year in the URC, Yucco Paper pulling out both Springbok hookers and giving them a bit of a dressing down around their, their leaders in the Springboks and uh, do they think their actions is appropriate to um, the values of, of rugby and blah, 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 blah. So I'd say that that's one of that's always a good one. Um, I've got a couple here, but I don't want to steal any of uh, Nate's thunder either. I've got two on my list. One is, I mean, one ref to play on and a player to ref back. Um, I guess the first one, it, again, we'll keep on Nigel Owen themes. It's the um, Chris Robshaw one where, you know, Nigel's explaining it all very sort of, it's all kind of cordial, explain the call. Chris comes back and he's like, ah, Christopher? Christopher? <laughs> Sorry, sir. And he just kind of gives away. Just, Sorry, sir, just a of, look. That's all you need. That's all you need. Just a word. The, the full name, the word, the sort of tone of it is so perfect. I love it. And the other one, and again, I'm slightly bending the rules, but I just love it. It's one of my favorite clips is when, um, I think it's Hurricanes Reds, when um, T, I think TJ Paranara goes to the, the sort of grabber, not a grabber, the tap kick, goes to score. Gus Garden brings it back, and I think he was calling a was calling a knock on or, or a scrum or something like that. And then TJ corrects him about the penalty, and then you just see the look on uh, Gus's face, like a oh, yeah, that's that's fair. Just kind of kind of gave that look, like oh, oh yeah, that's right. I, I'd love the sort of the ability to just sort of accept him and be like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, let's go back to that. It's such a perfect moment. I love it. There's another one on my list too, mate. So. Yeah, I, want, I kind of want to poke you more about what other ones you've got on your list, Coops. I kind of want to, if there's, if, even if you've got some like hidden gems that we don't know about. Um, I, I, I listen. I listened to. I didn't read um, Wayne Barnes's uh, new book since he retired, um, and he and he talks to the the interaction between. Um, the England hooker at the time, but it was being played in a Heineken Cup final where he, he got called a cheat. And that interaction um, on field is always a, an interesting one to look back on, on how, obviously, him wanting to draw the line in the sand around that respect piece, but um, how it was handled on the day. And then if you've, if you've got time, actually go and read the um, Barnes' new book or, or go and listen to it. Um, and how he reflects on how he could have done it slightly differently to obviously get the same outcome, but not sound as cranky and pissed off as he as he was. So um, I had that one on the list. I can't remember the, the exact wording of it, um, but I think if you write Nigel Owens in, in Google, you must probably have another seven more. Um, the, one, the one from Nigel Owens that I remember was... Um, not straight throw, um, and the hooker walks up to him at the the scrum and has a go at him about the call, and he goes, mate, I'm straighter than that throw. This is always a, a bit of a laugh. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's the best one. I think that's, that is Pinnacle Nigel right there. Yeah. I love that one. That's oh, my absolute awesome. favourite. I love that one. Well, either that one or him telling off um, Stuart Hogg. At the at the World Cup, where Stuart Hogg tried to milk a penalty against South Africa, I mean, can we say milk? He kind of just fell down in a very interesting, questionable way, and just said, "I was looking at it. He was he was he was uh, committed in the air. There was nothing wrong to it. Dive like that again and come back here in two weeks and play. Not today." What? I love it. Any soccer reference from Owens, it just it always works so perfectly. I love it. 
the punching bag of, of soccer is uh, is well used by by Nigel Owens when it comes to, to talking down the rules and laying down the law. Gambridge. But it's a good segue to a bit of a discussion around the state of things referee-wise. And we're very lucky to have Coops here to, to talk about all of that stuff. And the first thing that I kind of want to ask you a little bit about was something that has kind of probably slipped under the radar a little bit again since the rugby has kind of restarted because everyone's just happy to have rugby, which is these new tackle laws uh, that have been have been introduced, um, which kind of sees a change in where players can actually tackle on particular parts of the body and what areas constitute uh, areas like, you know, uh, is considered high and what a penalty is and that it's going to be applied across rugby, um, not just at, you know, trialling at international level. It's going to be down, brought down to the community level and, and referees will be, you know, taught to implement these new rules going forward. Um, what was kind of the basis behind some of those changes and what sort of, what did, did it, did, what kind of was the starting point that led to these decisions kind of being brought in from your perspective? Yeah, so the... Um, I guess the the trial and the research behind this is most probably a five year project um, from World Rugby, um, engaging with a number of unions around the world on on specific competitions that initially implemented the law change around lowering tackle height. Um, the real catalyst um, in more recent times were a couple of deaths in the French rugby union that happened because of um, high contact. Um, and then also obviously the, the ongoing discussion around concussion and, and trying to minimise concussion um, as much as possible. So that concussion piece and then what really accelerated it was the, the, the issues in France around a couple of um, community rugby players passing away because of high contact. Um, and that forced them to go from pretty radical from shoulder line to below waist. Um, off the back of that, World Rugby engaged a couple of other of the um, member unions, um, South Africa being one, New Zealand being the other, um, to trial different laws. Um, so that's sort of where it all began. And out of that, um, we had the option to, I guess, run with the trial um, earlier than we did. Um, but we really wanted to see from a Rugby Australia perspective the data that sat behind it to make a really informed decision on, on what law we wanted to trial. Um, and then off the back of that, 4.2 times less likely to um, have head-on-head -head collisions if the tackle is below the sternum. Um, obviously, the concussion piece around... Um, if, if you move one player away from the head or neck of, of the ball carrier, you're obviously less likely to make head-on-head -head contact in the game. So that's where we went. Um, we decided to, to trial everyone below the sternum. So if you're going to make a tackle, all um, defenders need to go below the sternum. We're in New Zealand, trialled, and are in the second year this year of their trial, that first one below the sternum. And then the second one, as per normal law, which is below the shoulders. Um, mm. And the reason why we didn't go with the New Zealand model is because um, we're doing our own research into or adding to the, the research and data 
on this specific law. So they're doing that law. We've decided to do one. South Africa's, South Africa's doing a slightly different law variation because uh, what we want to do is actually then go to World Rugby and be like, okay, well, which one do you want to pick? If you're going to mandate this across the game, which is the better scenario um, of the data that we collect around the world? Um, is it everyone below the sternum? Is it uh, sternum for the initial tackler and below the shoulders for the secondary tackler? Um, so we decided to pick one and and it was different for for a number of reasons to the the Kiwi or the South African law change. Does it, it I can I do know that like you know making these small changes and amendments it is you're dealing with very tiny like it's a thing that can make a huge amount of difference um in terms of player management and the first thing that this is me talking with my pure uh player brain for a moment um, when we when we first saw those kind of tackle laws come in, the first thoughts that kind of came into my head um, in a couple of the chats that I had, a few people were like, well, I don't know how I'm going to be able to tackle like that because sometimes you tackle, you know, going for the chest is the easier option if you are a player, especially if you play at a lower grade like myself where <laughs> we're not as well technically ex- uh, technically as strong uh, with, our, with our technique and stuff like that. But it was also a double-edged sword initially when, when I was th- looking at it because I was thinking about the ref. Uh, it's obviously a lot smaller margin for error, uh, if, you know, and there's even the idea, the, the challenges of things like a player may start in the right place, but through the momentum of the tackle might move the, the, themselves into a position of danger. Um, what sort of ways can you kind of look at that? Or is it a simple case of similar to other rules, What other ref, how the ref particularly implements it and the feedback you get? Yeah, so um, how we're approaching with the the referees around the country is um, obviously the trigger um, because we we have triggers in our decision-making processes in all aspects of the game is is identifying the ball and if the tackle is on the ball or below the ball, it's most probably a legal tackle. I know the coaching side of things is they're talking about the belly tackle or under ball tackle in the implementation. So our triggers the ball. We never really see a ball carrier hold the ball above their head or below their sternum. It's normally in that in that range of that mid-chest. So if a, if, if a tackler goes underneath that, that's most probably our trigger. As we say in all of our decision-making, decision if it's not clear and obvious, uh, we, we shouldn't actually be actioning on it. So if it's not clear and obviously above the sternum, we're still at a play on. And... What we're actually talking to our match officials about in the rollout is above the sternum or the, the base of the sternum is still only a penalty kick. So we're, we're not sanctioning the players um, any higher with yellow cards and red cards. So we, when, we, when we do talk to our referees and our coaches and our players, it's most probably the first thing we say is it's just a penalty kick above the sternum. And what we're actually finding in a couple of games that, um, have been rolled out in trial matches is it's easier to distinguish the higher range high tackle. So those that enter the head contact process around head or neck contact, they actually stick out more to us now and are easier to make decisions on um, because we've got six inches of um, six to eight inches from below sternum to, I guess, the, the neck or chin. So there are some positives from a decision-making perspective, but obviously any rollout, new law, 
this is an adjustment period and we expect that the the French data, um, albeit below um, waste, but also the Kiwi data last year, shows a, a 15 to 20% increase in penalty kicks for the first six weeks. And the reason being is everyone's adjusting to it. The referee will make a wrong decision um, at some point, which increases that penalty kick count. But so the players are making that adjustment and still learning to obviously bend their hips, bend their their waist to make that lower lower contact as well. So, mate, any law change, we're gonna we're gonna have hiccups, we're gonna have bumps in the road, um, and everyone's adjusting. So that's the I guess the mentality that we're going into it with. Just one of those things I want to talk about with those rules. Like I was lucky enough to hear you present along with a couple other people when this first got announced in December. And what stood out was, uh, yes, that, that number of 4.4% less likely is incredible stat. But actually how it sort of was it was sort of leading to more attacking rugby and sort of actually opening up the game. Can you sort of just sort of deep dive into that and what that research in New Zealand and France has found just to actually make the game a better spectacle from something which I'm guessing wasn't the sort of the main goal behind this? Yeah, so um, the Kiwi data um, shows uh, more ball in play. So there's less choke tackles, less maul, less unplayable rucks and mauls off the back of that. So they're really getting an offload off um, more frequently or the breakdown speed is actually quicker. So because of lower tackle focus, people are hitting the ground and therefore the, the breakdown speed's quicker there's there's less bodies around that zone than than competitions that haven't implemented it yet the french um the french competitions have seen a a huge increase in ball in play time i'm not going to quote the number because i can't pull it off the top of my head but that's off the back of saying ruck speed being quicker more offloads in the game um so there are positives um and both competitions saw a an increase but over a, a season actually got to on par, if not below the number of penalty kicks that were previously given in games for high contact. So it will take an adjustment. Um, and, and, but I think if it increases the ball in play and then also the perception of the game being safer um, because of it, I think it's going to hopefully, and the, the French data shows that, um, there's been an increase in participation off the back of it. Um, hopefully the registration numbers in New Zealand um, point to that picture as well. And that's what I guess we can hang our hat on as a, a contact sport that's putting player welfare at the, as the number one priority that you don't need to be looked to be taking people's heads off for people to come back to the game and start enjoying it more, especially at the, at the grassroots roots level. Interesting. It's really interesting to hear kind of some of the feedback that this has actually had, but also particularly that it seems like, from what you've be, you say, that a lot of the refs have actually a clearer idea of what constitutes penalty and what doesn't. Um, so it may actually be quite helpful to, to, again, speed the game up. What sort of, if you're like a casual rugby fan, what is advice or casual player rather who looks at this and goes, what the hell? is this, this is a completely new way of looking at the game or whatever, what advice would you give to them kind of based off the data that you've seen but also, you know, some of the initial feedback that you might have been seeing here on the ground as well? Um, I think it's a, 
it, 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 the first one is like I think you need to to have a crack at it before you have a genuine opinion on how you feel about the game. I think the the reason why it's being implemented is to provide a safer environment for that individual. Um, so I think have that at front of mind, but going into the game and obviously your training and, and stuff like that and, and try and develop that. Um, I guess most probably going back to what we first and, and how we first learned to tackle. Um, what we're finding that the, the junior coaches and the junior players, it's actually not changing how they play the game because no junior coach is coaching a, a front-on upright tackle um, or a choke tackle or anything like that. All our junior coaches are looking at low wraps or that belly tackle to get um, players on the ground. So that side of the game, it's, it's more when we, we have coaches thinking around ways to and have more time on their hands, I might add, to talk around slowing the game down or, or trying to gain possession of the ball and things like that is where we, I guess we see that slight um, change. I know that a couple of our premier competitions have had their tackle height and GMG presentations and there was a, there's discussions around, oh, we're, we're losing the choke, we're losing the mall and things like that and um, how are we meant to slow down the, um, the ball. Ultimately, how we're seeing is it, like teams that are better over the ball at the breakdown are reaping the rewards. The, the teams that are low wrapping and getting their jacklers in good positions are actually most probably coming away with more um, breakdown penalties than those turnovers. So it's a, it's a change of mentality of how you slow the ball or gain possession is it's not in the mall or choke tackle scenario. It's refining the breakdown skills, especially of the defender, to then get on the ball and, and win the jackal. So we might be seeing over the next couple of years I guess more David Pocock's being developed and, and things like that, um, rather than your bigger bodied Valentinis. Don't get me wrong, love Valentini, but we might be getting now genuine fetches back um, that we haven't really had in the game in, in Australia for a, a couple of years now. Well, it definitely makes me want to improve my tackle technique. So uh, <laughs> playing playing in fourth grade up here in Newey. So I will, uh, it's very interesting and will be really interested to see how it kind of examines and unfolds over the, you know, not just super rugby, but also, uh, you know, in premier grade, in lower grades, uh, in subbies. Um, it'll be quite interesting to keep a watch on that space and also see how other players as well as the refs uh, react to it um, and see how it goes going forward. Yeah, I think, mate, the, the, the thing there is I think everyone's just got to be patient with it. It's not like no one's going to be perfect, whether it's a player, coach or match official over the next three or four months. Um, it's a two-year trial for a reason because we're most probably looking at the data in, in 25 to be our decision-making data when everyone's had um, 12 months, 6 to 12 months prep and things like that, so... And it's a very good segue to on, on the subject of ref experience and, and, and discussions around referees because it feels like there's been a lot of stuff happening, especially in the professional space. Um, and the first thing, of course, we, we kind of talked about the Wallabies documentary uh, in our last episode last week. But, of course, there's other, episode, other um, documentaries that have come out and, of course, one of the other big ones is Whistleblowers. If you haven't seen it, it follows a whole bunch of referees uh, throughout the World Cup. But... Have you, did you get the chance to check this out, Coops? I know you probably you're, you weren't involved in it, um, but I know a lot of people that you know pro- were. 
have you seen it? What, what were your initial thoughts looking at it? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I haven't watched all of it. I just probably haven't watched the final piece on Wayne Barnes and and the, and the World Cup final. But I um, I have seen three quarters of it, and mate, I think it's a it's an interesting take on what we do as match officials. So I I've most probably worked whether I well most probably running touch for for most of those guys that have been in that uh, at, as a referee at that World Cup. So. I know the guys quite well, um, and I think it just gives a really good insight into one what they do and how they go about the the role, and it really humanises the person with the whistle. Um, and I think that's the I think that's the message for me is, and we we don't talk enough about the referee as a as a rugby lover, and referees doesn't matter what level and and world world rugby is the same you could just see how much care they have for the game like the amount of work they put in um obviously the camaraderie between the individuals in in that group and and when i use individuals it, it sometimes is an individual um sport but where we possibly can we try and create that team environment and that camaraderie because if if we don't, it's very isolating. And some of the stories in um, in the in the doco um, highlight that where it can be when you're getting scrutinised by the media and and fans and things and bombarded on social media. That's when you want to lock yourself in a dark room and not come out. And without being able to go to a teammate in a similar role and talk about it, it's a, it is a lonely world. And and that's what we're trying to work especially in Australia with our associations, is how we build that camaraderie and that team environment. But then I think it just shows how much work goes on in the background. Like they're extremely fit individuals. They're running Broncos on average quicker than a super rugby player would besides the freaks of the Bowden Barretts and and stuff. Like Christoph Ridley, the English referee, runs a 4.16, three seconds slower than Bowden Barrett's record. Like... They're running fitness tests and physical um, things just as as well as the players are. Um, they're most probably watching more video than um, the players are. Obviously, we, we can't physically train for what we do outside Gussie Gardner's um, shadow boxing take, as, as I like to call it. But um, <laughs> where we can visualise and stuff like that, we, we do just like a player would, um, standing on field, visualising them, Selves kicking the the penalty goal or or throwing the ball into the line out, that's the only way we can practice outside watching hours and hours of video that can be really repetitive and sometimes pretty boring. So I think overall positive for us. Um, it talks about some shit things that happen to us. If excuse my language, like the abuse and the the isolation. We swear all the time. You're allowed. Uh, <laughs> So it's encouraged on this program. It's encouraged. Highlighting that as as a real, uh, obviously, welfare issue for the the MO group, it was one thing. But I think more importantly is they're actually just genuine blokes and girls wanting to do the best for the game, and they put an amount of work behind the scenes, and yeah. um, and that's made that cascades down into community football. Like um, if you look at our premier panels around the country, we. Um, 
they're training two, three, running two or three times a week as a group. They're in the gym two or three times. They're prepping for their games and reviewing their games. So, and they're the accountant down the road. They're the, the school teacher that's doing it as their second job. But I was probably putting in nearly just as much time and effort than a, a Gussie Gardner on a, um, as a full-time referee, you know. So um, there's a mountain of work um, getting done, and I think that just highlights that. And more time we can tell the story, um, you would see a number of referees on, um, on social media and doing more, funny enough, podcasts um, <laughs> and, and things like that to try and promote what we do. If we don't talk about it, we can't, I guess, talk about how good the role is and recruit more referees, um, but more people understanding what we do and how we go about our role, obviously they can then have a bit more empathy when we run out there and are trying our best to get the best decisions uh, in somewhat, in sometimes the most complex game in the world. Absolutely. And I guess that's shone through. But I'm, I guess the, the sort of making it's also come out of this was the sort of arrest of that Queensland guy who you know, was abusing referees and they were managed to sort of track down his IP. You sort of talk about that sort of the protection. It's not the protection, but sort of that brotherhood that's in place of, you know, looking after referees, you know, we've seen what happened to Nick in 21, you know, there's been other cases that have come out. What's your sort of personal experience around that sort of stuff? And what do you find are those sort of other mechanisms you've picked up from other referees or what you found yourself is the best way just to sort of to funnel that and not let it sort of affect you as you described? Yeah, it's a, um, it's an interesting one, mate. My first, I guess, case of it, um, especially around the social media stuff was a, a first NRC game here in Perth, actually, and obviously being a Perth boy myself, copped a little bit when the Perth spirit lost in a in a close one. Um, but I think where it gets really personal is when, um, and it was highlighted in the documentary, when it starts to, to bring in you as an individual, so they start calling you personally by name um, and, and then obviously bringing in family and, and things like that is, is, is pretty hectic. So that, that was my first and most probably a naive, what would have been 25-year-old referee back then. I had my social media for everyone to see and was allowing people to follow me and things like that. And you quickly realise that sometimes those followers aren't there for the right reasons and you, you quickly turn your <laughs> your social media onto private and, and, and things like that unless you want to really... Um, sprout out what you're doing. So learned that the hard way um, and um, learned not to show them to my um, some of my best mates because they wanted to track people down and hunt them down themselves. But there are things in place now, um, obviously trying to, you, you try to keep um, those people away from your accounts, but obviously with private messaging and stuff, it, it happens all the time. I got a couple of messages last year that, Again, now that what we do is just screenshot and send them to integrity and there's there's processes and procedures now in place that they can go and, and track them down and find them. So that's a huge step. And and, and obviously having that publicised that it, it, that it was an Aussie that, that that got done, I think, I guess might hopefully get people to think twice before they get stuck into the keyboard after a, a few beers and their team losing on the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one moment you mentioned, and I'm sorry, I've got to ask on a lighter note. It's the 
the classic video of Gus Gardner. Again, it's it's shot. If, if no one said it, it's shot perfectly of him sort of shadow refereeing a game, and it sort of cuts in the court. I think, I think it was a quarterfinal. It was one of the World Cup games where he did. And it's such a sort of amazing sort of um, cinematography, but. I've got to ask. That's that's not for cameras. Like that's that's his regular process, isn't it? I'm just sort of that visualization. Is that something that you've sort of done yourself? Just to kind of, as you said, get it, get in the practice wherever you can. Yeah, mate, mate. Gus, um, Gus is a pretty diligent guy around how he preps for games. He's he's very methodical, and and yeah, that is Gus. And I, I don't think he would have allowed it on camera um, if it wasn't Gus. I don't think he's the kind of guy that would have bullshitted his way through that because it's hard to without having a smile on your face and looking like an idiot. But Gus, um, that's what he does. And 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 you most probably would have seen the, the Rebels Brumbies game, mate. He's an he's an elite communicator. He makes awesome decisions. And 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 off the back of that, it comes from that methodical prep that he does do. Um, do I do it myself? I don't do it as deliberately as Gus does it. And I don't do, I don't, yeah, I, I, don't get me wrong, I, I stand on a rugby field and, and walk through scenarios. I, I'm just probably not as deliberate as Gus around that. Um, I set out times in my week to, to prep around what I'm going to say in, in different situations. So I might see a couple of situations from this weekend and I'll, and I'll give myself some time during the week to, to be like, okay, if I'm in this situation, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it and um, how am I actually going to describe it? So not the players on the field understand, but the million viewers um, that that are watching the game to understand and more importantly, sometimes our commentators. So you, you're not just taking the players along for the journey and communicating to them, but it's it's making sure that the fans and commentators are understanding your your flow of decision making, your balance of decision making, within the context and how you see it. Um, and if you don't prep for that, um, as we all know, when you get put under the pump, you say some dumb things. Um, the reason why we visualise, shadow ref, and practice what we're going to say is so we don't have those moments in in high pressure situations. It's I, I do th- love when this documentary has kind of dropped kind of as a as a kind of a key point because i mean i think we, we, when we had you on the pod last year i know we we kind of talked about leading into the world cup and the particular stuff that we had that you got that the as a group you'd been prepping for in terms of particular things you were going to focus on and uh, things you were going to look at and that by the time we got to france uh, probably that those processes were going to be really well ironed out and organised and well and and well orchestrated. For the best part, I actually thought that the refereeing on the field was very good during the World Cup. Um, things were described really, really well. Um, it, it resulted in incredibly compelling matches on the field. Um, I think it was well reflected in a lot of the games we saw. Um, you know, of course, you will have kinks and issues, um, and I think there's a lot of discussion right now, for example, around the TMO and how much the, the TMO is used and utilised and how much that impacts the game. But what was particularly interesting why, in terms of why this came out at this particular time is I've never seen since following the World Cup final um, such an interesting cha- uh, change of circumstances around so many referees who have been at that elite level for such a long period of time. Of course, you mentioned Wayne Barnes, who has now resigned 
uh, has, has retired and spoke of receiving to the point of death threats uh, from from that. Even the TMO himself, Tom Foley, um, has has now said he is no longer going to do test matches because of the abuse he received. Um, of course, Yako Piper has obviously resigned, uh, has retired as well, but obviously that was the additional thing of, 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 of picking up an injury during the World Cup. Uh, but it did kind of make it give me pause, um, especially in, in light of some of the escalation of the, the, the sporting event and the spectacle is is fantastic. Uh, and people got emotionally wrapped up in that. But that can, again, lead to people overreacting and taking things a bit too far. Uh, it, this is a real challenge, isn't it, for, for ref, like if you are a ref, and what has kind of been that fallout, not just that you've seen in the documentary, but you, you've spoken amongst this group um, following the World Cup, particularly around that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think, mate, I think um, at the World Rugby level we're losing um, well, two of the most experienced from a game perspective, um, with Wayne and Yako leaving, and there, there, there's most probably a couple more that won't pick up the whistle in in, in future like test windows. Um, obviously, due to retirement, I'm not going to speculate who they are. You, you might be able to guess them, but um, like we're most probably going to lose a chunk of experience at that top level. So we're talking about 12 refs at the at the World Cup. You're most probably losing four of your most experienced refs at that level over the next either have left or over the next 12, 18 months. Um, and when you're talking about guys that have done, I think Yako did over 65 test matches, you're talking Wayne Barnes, over 100. That's a that's a huge loss to a group that outside of those is actually quite young um, or less experienced. So you then, I think your next most experienced would be your Angus Gardner's, your Paul Williams, um, in that group, and now Ben O'Keefe, and then underneath that, it's a very young group, and I say young in in game time, not per se their age, um, and that's going to have to be developed over the next four years. I think the the exciting thing for us as a referee group, it it gives us opportunities. So th- there is going to be change. There is going to be new people appointed to to top level test matches that they're they wouldn't even have got a look in with with those four still involved because they they take up games, and right, rightfully so. So there's going to be a changing of the guard a little bit there, and mate, four years is a long time. Like it, it only takes a either a, a, like a, a tough game or, or or some abuse for someone just to walk away. Like Tom Foley, for example, he was he was mate. He's one of the premiership's top referees. In the UK, um, he's most probably a, we, we call him a triple threat, someone that can ref AR and TMO. We don't we don't have a lot of those. The the other one is most probably Brendan, Brendan Pickerel from, from New Zealand. No one really specialises in all three formats. You normally, you ref and you AR as a role and then the TMOs are seen as this other group that are a little bit odd and, and, uh, and love that shit, you know. But what made Tom so good, and, and so I'm, I'm going to pump my Kiwi colleague up, Brendan so good, is they understand the whole game. And, and, and that's from 
the referee to the AR to their role and they actually make some really relevant decisions and good decisions in match because of that. The other the other one I, I miss him out is, is Ben Whitehouse from Wales. I, I, I think his approach to the team O role as a referee and AR as well is amazing. He, he's got a little bit of a, a, a piece in the document, the whistleblowers documentary, and his approach is just so refreshing to how he goes about that role and the TMO. But yeah, huge, huge loss. I sort of forgot where we the other question to that was, but yeah, the 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 changeover is going to be massive. It, the, as kind of a a good kind of ending point off that on that on that stuff. I mean, of course, you'll have taken a lot of learnings from the World Cup. No system is perfect. If only it was. Uh, it's always going to be refined. It's always going to be worked on. What are things that, as a group, you guys are looking at that and going, okay, uh, this, this, and this, and this worked at the World Cup, but this we need to work on a little bit more. Is there kind of where, where is is the refereeing space going to look like? On top of obviously the stuff we've already discussed tonight, but other things that you will examine in terms of the game, spectacle, everything that you think might be kind of become the focus in the next 12 to 18 months as we head towards 2027? Yeah. Um, mate, I think the, the positive out of the, the World Cup was, and, and something that we were implementing in Super Rugby last year, was the review process for, for red cards. So obviously meets yellow card threshold, bang, put them in the bin, put them on review. Um, I think that, that takes a massive like bite out of the emotion in a game around big decisions. And I think there was a couple of examples in the World Cup that bang, big head collision, yeah, meets yellow card threshold. The process was shortened, so we weren't looking at thousands of replays to um and ah, whether it was a yellow or a red. It was like, no, it's clearly a yellow. So you're off for 10 minutes, you're on review. And then when the decision from the TMO came back after it had been looked at from a bunker as well, um, to the, the on-field referee and the referee went to captains, hey, guys, just letting you know that red card's been upgraded to a red because of X, Y and Z. I think the players and the spectators just go, oh, yeah, the game's actually carried on for the last eight and a half minutes and no one really cared about the collision. And then we, we, we crack on. Um, we're going to be utilising that in Super Rugby and there was some scenarios over the weekend that um, were good examples of that again. So I think that's a big tick. Um, mate, the, the ever-ending discussion around speed of scrums, speed of play, um, shot clocks at the World Cup were good. Um, so, so keeping our kickers on time. For some reason, I don't know why we can't get a shot clock in a Super Rugby game on screen, but... That's that's not my <laughs> issue to solve. But we are managing it as referees on field with the kicker. And then it's injuries. How can we continue the game and continue the flow in the game um, to shorten that match time, whistle to whistle, and get a more exciting? We want, as much as we want big hits and things like that, we want fatigue in the game. So those teams that are physically better and have better skills under fatigue are allowed to use those and gain advantage from that. And therefore, we're looking at more running rugby, more passes, more offloads because of that fatigue. If we don't bring fatigue into the game, 
we're just going to have slow crash and bash rugby because everyone's going to be fresh, jumping off the ground, wanting to whack someone. So I think that's the biggest focus for us as a as a referee group is how we increase that speed and keep the the flow in the game rather than having all these stoppages. Um, on that on that point, as a kind of point, what what were your thoughts uh, looking at the uh, at the rugby over the weekend over the first weekend of Super Rugby, both from a ref perspective and results wise, the the fan in you. It's just in, in one in particular. Sorry, the particularly that teammate call for the Reds Waratahs. That's going to be the one that gets <laughs> played a lot. And if we oh. don't ask you about that, we'll get crucified. So yes, that's that? right. That is Thought true. We that. do need to ask that. Do, do we want to start there and get it out of the way? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> May as well. um, uh, I'm assuming you're talking about the the penalty try yellow card. Um, for us as a refereeing group, um, and we we've got a, a discussion group around. I think. 12 big clips that we want to discuss over the weekends, we're all 100% on the same page that that is a penalty try yellow card. Um, you, um, 15 Waratahs, Max decides to tackle on suspicion of catching the ball. He hits Patea's arm before he makes contact with the ball, which causes Patea to lose possession. Um, if, if Max doesn't make contact, Jordan's most is probably, and in law it just has to be probable, uh, he's probably catching that ball and falling over the goal line and scoring the try himself. So for, for us it's a, it's a pretty simple, I wouldn't say simple, that's a that's poor, poor term there. Um, it's a bloody tough decision. But for us we're all clear that if that happens next week, we're all giving the same decision. So we're, we're all pretty aligned with that that decision there and James Dolman, I, th- I think got it spot on. I think a lot of the discussion was like when you, when you sort of slightly down to that sort of level, yeah, there's sort of a frame or two in it. I, I know there's sort of not a matrix, I think in the sort of system to either give a, just a yellow or a penalty try as it is. Is that something that needs to be looked at? Do you think in your, in the sort of in the future, when you consider a, a situation like that, where it's probably, does it probably warrant a yellow card? It probably warrants both, but, probably not the same time if you get what I'm saying from a from a fan's perspective. Yeah, it's a it's always an interesting one. It's sort of like a um, you, you do something, you get penalised with it with a penalty try. Um, and then you just get the old knife in the back and, and, and with the yellow card to go with it. Until they change the law. We can't really change that as match officials. Our hands are tied. The only the only phase of the game that we don't provide a yellow card for a penalty try is at the scrum. And we We've been given clarification from World Rugby around that. So we've sort of got our hands tied there. The, the only way that that changes is where it happens on the field. Jordan being literally a metre off the try line when he gets made contact with, like we've got no other place to go. But in saying that, there's a, there's a similar clip in the Highlanders game. It's on our um, thing that we discussed today is, very similar, but it happens seven metres out from the goal line. So for us, that's a that's a clear yellow card. Is he probably going to – I think it's a bit of a – too much of a stretch for him to be probably catching that, running the six metres with the bloke just behind him to score the try. So that's where it changes is the – and that's the beauty of, it, I guess, our job and, 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 and the work that we've got to do is we've – 
we've got to make those decisions. And our game is grey. You would have heard in the documentary, it was the word grey was used more than I've ever heard in my whole entire life. Um, and that's where we operate. That's what makes um, a super rugby a uh, a super rugby referee a super rugby referee over a community referee to a um, someone who operates in the grey at world rugby level over a super rugby ref. It's how we go about those specific decisions that I guess set you apart. Yeah, and it's it's a bloody hard job, and it's. Uh... It's 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 an, always trying to make sure that you, you strike the balance and make sure there's a great contest whilst also maintaining safety is a difficult difficult line to straddle. But it's definitely makes very, uh, rugby extremely interesting to watch. As a final point, because yeah. I know that you have uh, you've got people to see and places to be, um, you are a rugby fan at heart. Yeah. Thoughts on that first round and who, which clubs are you like going? Oh yeah, I like the look of how they're looking, direction they're going, way they're playing. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's. I'll go from, I guess, the first games. Obviously, the Chiefs-Crusaders game, gee, most probably lived up to what it was meant to. Um, I think the Chiefs look like the team to beat early, if I'm going to put a, a, a stamp on it. I think they're, they're a good footy team. Um, I think they might have just let, let the foot off the pedal um, and let the Crusaders back into it. Um, obviously, credit that's the Crusaders game, right? Um, they never say die and their ability to come back is is pretty impressive. Um, that was an awesome game to watch. Um, the next game, what was it? The Rebels, Brumbies. Oh, it's a little bit... <laughs> oh, mate, I, I, I really hoped it to be a, a closer encounter, to be honest. Um, and um, it had the makings of being a, a, a top-class footy game. Bit of ill discipline, bit of bit of execution, and that's on both teams. I think, like, I think the Brumbies. If yeah. you look back at that, the Brumbies would have been bloody disappointed that they didn't put them to the sword. So they didn't round out the game that that most that they most probably wanted to. The Rebels would be disappointed. I think the made I feel sorry for them. I've, I've been in WA when the force got cut the first time, and the emotion just in the rugby landscape around that was massive and I could just imagine what, what's going through the, the Victorian rugby community and even just the Rebels in general and the players and the coaches. That's draining. I think they'll bounce back. Mm. I think getting the first game out of their, their system um, will be good and they'll just realise that they're there to play footy and, and, and that's what they can control. Next game, what was it? Moana, is it Moana Blues? Uh, that was the game you were doing. It was the game oh, you were doing. Third game. Yeah, yeah. Oh mate, Hurricanes just physically outdid the force. Um, yeah. Elite at the breakdown, their back row caused havoc at the breakdown. Um and set piece. Um number of penalties against the force at set piece. Um and then a line out that didn't function. Um so when you lose I think it was five lineouts on your throw in the second half. It's very hard to come back into a game um, yeah. off the back of that. So that was that game. I don't think. Oh, obviously having a player in in the bin for a head contact and a player in the bin for a collision in the air doesn't help you either when you're down to fourteen men for for twenty minutes. So that's a that hurts them. 
and it's going to hurt them because I think Marley's been cited for that. So he's um, broken his nose as well, so he'll yeah. be out for a while. <laughs> so that that hurts their front row stocks a little bit um, again. So that's that's that game. I most probably wouldn't comment any further on that, mate. I think Moana's going to upset a few people. Um, to be honest, I think. Um, the Moana Highlanders or Moana Moana Highlanders. Yeah. Sorry, Moana Highlanders. We'll go with that game. Um, they're gonna they're gonna be good. The Highlanders are a lot better team as well than they were last year. Obviously, change of um, personnel there has has been um, a breath breath of fresh air for them. Um, and Moana seemed like a slicker unit. Um, which probably were unlucky not to capitalise on a couple of good line breaks and things earlier in the game. And then some bit of razzle-dazzle from the, the Highlanders back three to score that amazing coast-to-coast try um, to to put them in front it was pretty impressive. Uh, mate, Blues are sharp again, I think. I think they're off the pace from what they were last year, but um, set-piece functioned well. And, mate, their, their back line, when they get going with Rico and Talia and, and things like that, will be... Um, pretty damaging, and um, I think it is it Arn Sullivan at fifteen with arguably the biggest boot in Super Rugby, um, putting them in places to attack from is pretty important. Mate, Drew will get going. Um, I'd hope, mate, they're going to win. I think seventh and seven at home. I think that they're going to make um, Lautoka a bloody fortress that no one wants to go to travel to. They're going to be in the mix. So that's them. What's the last game? Oh, the Reds Waratahs. Um, mate, Reds are Reds look like a more disciplined and more structured team than they have been in previous years, which I, I think for Australian rugby is pretty exciting. Um, obviously, Les there as, as the new coach is obviously implementing um, a, a few different things. You got Harry Wilson, most probably looking like he's back to his best. Um, Ball carrying form and and obviously McWright getting over the ball and, and causing havoc at the breakdown helps them as well. And then, mate, we might be we might have a, a code war with the A League with Patea um, after his heroics um, with the soccer ball. If you haven't seen that, it's incredible. Um, I won't go there. I won't go there. Sorry, code wars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But mate, that that guy's a freak. I think if he stays on the field and and, and plays more rugby, he's only going to get better. So Waratahs, I think they're still needing to get going. Um, they've got a they've got a big forward pack. They've got a good enough front row. They've got massive locks, um, and their back row is pretty handy. Um, I think Fiketti, unfortunately, with his injury during the week hurts them a little bit. I, th- I think that they'll miss him at 12. Um, hopefully he he has a speedy recovery because that, that obviously didn't sound good initially, but I'm glad he's he's all right off the back of that or as well as he could be. And I think Max at 15 is pretty exciting too if he stays and plays a whole year there. So yeah. that's my rugby fan wrap-up. I could go I into a lot more detail. Um, and the referee performances were on point as well, guys. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just throw that in there um, to give my colleagues a, a pump up. But I don't think there's outside most probably that penalty try, which some people would 
argue either way. I think our our refereeing group had a great weekend and and we're not really being spoken about too much, which is a positive. Yeah, when nothing when there is no comments about the referee and the, and the focus is on the rugby, then you have done your job. Um, honestly, could chat to you all day, Coops. Every single time you come on, we could chat to you all day. But uh, I want to say thank you so much. It's uh, it's always good to chat uh, where the lo- the lie of the laws are. Uh, with you and what uh, and what things are looking like going into a season of rugby. Um, always love having uh, having you on the show. Thank you so much, mate. It's been great. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. Always good to chat. Footy season's back. Fine. Yeah, good. We've got another week to to get back on the horse and take that horse to the water. And you can ask that horse. You can say, Hey, horsey, do you want do you want to have a drink or do you want to swim? Yeah, and it's up to that horse to then realise what he wants to do in his life. So we're looking forward to, like I say, getting back on that horse. And are you looking forward to getting back on the horse six months since we last saw you? I don't like horses, I can't ride. Give myself enough for cap